All right. Luke chapter 13 this evening, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we come to Luke chapter 13, and let me find the verse here in verse 22. And he, that is Jesus, went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem and the cross at this point in his life and his ministry. And he is uh, making a point to stop in so many of the villages and small towns and cities that were uh, between where he was at this time uh, and uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, coming in and, and, uh, and ministering in in uh, this way, extending the journey in this way under the direction of the Spirit. And as he was doing this in one of these cities, uh, uh, one said to him, a single individual, Lord, are there few who are saved? That's an interesting question, isn't it? You ever wondered that as a Christian? You don't have to shout out. But you ever wonder about that? Well, how many people actually are saved? How many people really are going to heaven? I mean, is it a big number? Is it a small number? Is it more than I uh, might think that it is? Is it less than what I might think it is? And so that's a, that's a question that people of God think about. And it was a question that was tumbling around in this man's mind. And so he's got access to Jesus. Jesus has come uh, near to him. And so he poses the question. I would pretend we don't know the answer to his question. You'd be on the edge of your seat where he would say, well, you know, it's going to be this, or it's going to be this number, the 144,000, or whatever it might be, or uh, millions, or trillions, or billions, or thousands. And yet here is, he poses, the, the man, single man poses a question to him, he then spoke to them, plural, a crowd that is uh, present at the same time. So he's going to turn this question, because it's significant enough, he turns it into a teachable moment for the larger group of people who are following him. And his exhortation is, strive to enter through the narrow gate. And in essence, Jesus is saying to the entire crowd, to us today, that how many are going to be saved and how many are not going to be saved is not our concern. It is not our uh, worry or a, 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 f a focus for us. Our sole concern is to make sure that the one thing that we have control over occurs, and that is that we are saved, that we enter into the kingdom uh, of God through faith in Him. And so he says to strive uh, to enter through the narrow gate. And of course, salvation is referred to or represented by a narrow gate uh, repeatedly in the Scriptures. Important to notice that the way of salvation is a narrow way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He didn't have to say that. He didn't have to say that. Probably be more popular in the world if he didn't say that. But he did say it because it, was, it is the truth. And so, though the way is narrow, no one is excluded from the way. Everyone can enter in that wants to uh, enter in. 
So he says, strive to enter through the narrow gate into the salvation that is found in me. And then he says, for, reason word, many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not uh, be able. Uh, when once the master of the house, uh, speaking of God the Father, has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. So he's stating the fact that this opportunity to enter in through this door, the opportunity for salvation is a, uh, it is a finite opportunity. It all, won't always be present. Uh, every single human being uh, loses the opportunity to be saved at the moment of death. Another time, in, in probably what he's addressing here even more specifically, another time that the opportunity for salvation is lost will be at Jesus' second coming. And he'll separate the sheep from the goats, those that have become Christians uh, during the Great Tribulation, and those who have continued their rebellion against him as the, the Lamb of God, and all the way through that seven-year period, and then separated off uh, into judgment. And once that happens, uh, the, the door uh, is closed. So the reminder that this, this opportunity is available now, but, but it won't always uh, be. And, uh, and so he shuts the door, and then you begin to stand outside, verse 25, knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. And so he doesn't know them in the sense that they did not allow him to begin a salvation relationship with him. And then he anticipates what the, the complaint will be at that moment. And then you will begin to say, we ate, we drank in your presence, you taught on our streets. We loved a good Bible study. We love when you uh, uh, multiplied uh, the, the bread and the fish. We loved all of these things that, uh, that you did in part of the crowd concerning uh, all of that. And so they, they did. They enjoyed all of it. They did everything but be born again. Everything but come in through uh, the narrow way and be saved. And he will, say, he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where you are from, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. And the evidence that they aren't saved is that they're practicers of iniquity. And perhaps there's an idea here of certainly concerning uh, the rejection of Jesus Christ for salvation, that that is the greatest iniquity or sin that anyone can commit against God. For God to send His Son, as He promised prophetically in the Old Testament Scriptures, into the world, to allow Him to be savaged in the way that He was, ultimately die the death of the cross, be buried, rise again on the third day, and for uh, any human being to look at that and then sniff at it and reject it. Well, we, people don't think anything of doing that in the world. The overwhelming majority of people in the world do that today and think nothing of it. But stop and think about how that rejection is viewed in heaven from the vantage point of the white-hot holiness of this Christ-honoring place called uh, heaven. That is a, a great iniquity. 
And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Wow. Okay, so he's talking to a Jewish audience here. And he's declaring to them, despite all of their religion, despite all of their traditions that they had, uh, that uh, here is this possibility concerning those that refuse to be saved and accept Jesus as the Messiah and as Savior, that, that the, the future portion of that for all of their religion will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and then watching from some distance Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of the prophets in the kingdom of God in themselves out. This was inconceivable to the Jewish mind is that somehow a Jewish person isn't going to end up in heaven. And it was certainly inconceivable to a Jewish religious leader. If anyone was going to get into heaven, it was the leaders of these various sects of, of Judaism. And, uh, and uh, he's speaking to them of the fact that that isn't enough, and you can be all of that and still be thrust out because of your rejection of me. Then in verse 29 is kind of the closest that Jesus comes to giving them an answer to uh, the original question about how many will be saved. And he says, they will come from the east uh, and the west and from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And here he talks about the Gentile world coming in and becoming uh, Christians. That it won't merely be Jews, but it'll be... <clears throat> Uh, Gentiles as well, and indeed the uh, there, <clears throat> and indeed there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. In other words, one day when we stand in heaven, uh, it, it'll be uh, it'll be a shock because sometimes where you can look at all of the robes, all the tradition, all the religion, all of the church attendance, or whatever it might be, these badges that we put on as works that will one day guarantee we're going to be uh, in heaven and assume that a person is going to be there without anything to do with Christ, and then you look at some awful kind of human being and his name is notorious in human history and yet sometime in the course of his or her life they commit their life to Christ and end up in heaven solely based upon what, it, what is done with the gift of, of a Savior. So there'll be a lot of surprises in heaven related to that. So he doesn't tell them how many, just going to be a lot of people and not just from Israel but all around the world, the Gentile world as well. And uh, once you get there and you see who's there, uh, be prepared for uh, surprises. And on that day, some uh, Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. And Herod was uh, a governor there in, in, uh, um, in uh, that uh, region. And, uh, and so they're trying to get him to be afraid of the fact that uh, informing Jesus that Herod wanted to kill him. And Je Jesus' response was, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and, and on the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of uh, Jerusalem. So he refers to Herod as a fox. And so we think about 
uh, in the sayings of our culture, we talk about somebody being sly as a fox. And so uh, it can be uh, negative or it can be uh, positive. And, uh, but when Jews viewed foxes, they didn't view them necessarily as something uh, that was sly or clever supremely. They viewed them as something that was an uh, insignificant animal and very much as a destructive animal in terms of, of agriculture. And it's likely that uh, Jesus is referring to, uh, to Herod in that way, that he is not a great man for all of his titles. He's not a straight-up man for all of, all of his uh, titles. It's interesting that in the entire course of Jesus' uh, ministry, the only person he ever showed open contempt uh, toward was Herod. On the morning of his crucifixion, when Pilate, thinking he could get rid of the problem uh, that was brewing in terms of the demand to crucify Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders, he tried to pass him off on Herod. And so Jesus was taken then before Herod. Herod's great desire was that Jesus would do a, mag a magic trick for him. And, uh, and uh, Herod, not a, a, a very good uh, human being at all. And Jesus stood, stood utterly silent uh, in that environment. He, he, he is <clears throat> Herod is known as the one man in the Scriptures that Jesus had nothing to say to. Now that's quite a, a label to have attached, but it's an accurate label uh, con concerning him. And then Jesus uh, informed the Pharisees that <clears throat> uh, he, uh, he had work to do before his death in Jerusalem and that uh, Herod was not in charge of the remainder of his life before the cross, but that God the Father was uh, in, in control uh, of his life. And of course, that he would need to be crucified uh, uh, outside of Jerusalem in the fulfillment of, of biblical prophecy. And then Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. Now that's interesting how here is Jesus, the Son of God, and how he encapsulates Jerusalem. I've been to Jerusalem a number of times in my lifetime, and it's an amazing city, the history that is there, the biblical history that is there. As you think about all the things that could come to Jesus' mind where he could, what he would speak related to Jerusalem and addressing it, and foremost in his mind is that's the city that kills the prophets and stones the ones that God sends to them. And that was their history. You read the, the minor prophets, you read the major prophets, you read uh, the historical books of the Old Testament, and this was their legacy. And he said, how often I wanted to gather your children together, the Jewish people in Jerusalem, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, that's a, that's a beautiful picture of uh, here you have a hen, and then there are her chicks, and any kind of danger begins to come, and they run right from mama and come try to get under those wings. And Jesus said, that's what I wanted to be to you. Even in this condition of their long history, of treating God's spokesman in, in this way, and, uh, and even in their treatment of him up to this point, and even knowing what they're going to do to him. On, on Calvary, he still longs, this is his heart for people, longs to have been, instead of what was going to come upon Jerusalem, to be able to gather them 
uh, under uh, his wings, but they were not willing. And the idea is he was willing, but they were not willing. Excuse me a moment. He said, see, your house is left to you desolate, speaking of the temple in Jerusalem. And assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here Jesus speaks about 70 A.D., when the Roman general Titus would be sent uh, by the Caesar to put down a Jewish revolution that was going on in the land of Israel. And uh, as a result of that, uh, Jerusalem was completely leveled. And as was uh, the temple uh, in, in the, on the uh, Temple Mount. And so Jesus said, there's a price to be paid for this rejection of me, and terrible things are going to come uh, your way, and, uh, and you're not going to see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, at his second coming. So 70 A.D., this is long after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and ascension into heaven. Who's going to believe in Him or not believe in Him among the Jews that heard Him uh, speak this, these uh, uh, two or three decades after uh, Jesus' ascension uh, into heaven? They've already settled, you know, what they're going to do with Him or not. And it speaks about the end of the age, at Jesus' second coming. Then the Jews will, by and large, recognize Him at that point as their promised Messiah, and they will greet Him entirely differently at His second coming than they did at the first coming. They will cry out uniformly, Blessed is He who comes in the name uh, of the Lord. Then we come into chapter 14, and it happened as Jesus went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees, he did so invited to enjoy a meal or eat bread on the Sabbath day. So he's invited by a Pharisee. Um, Jesus did. He, he accepted uh, lunch and dinner and probably breakfast invitations. Uh, he, he's continually coming into these places, of course, eating within the Jewish culture. It's a fellowship kind of, of, of an environment. So it's an opportunity to be influential for the kingdom of God. He's invited at, at this point, not merely by a Pharisee who was a leader uh, in uh, the sect of the Pharisees, the, the strictest, most legalistic sect among the Jews, but this man is one of the rulers of the Pharisees. He's probably a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, one of the 70 most powerful Jewish uh, leaders in the in not only in Israel but in the entire world at that time, making up the Sanhedrin. And Jesus accepted the invitation to a meal. And, and as he arrives there, uh, they watched him closely. So it's not, a, uh, it's, it's not just the Pharisee and Jesus. The Pharisee has invited a large group of, of other people there, and, uh, and they're watching Jesus closely. And the idea, the word watched in the original language here, it means to watch the way a spy would watch another person, where you're watching them, but you don't want to let them know that you're watching him. And so it, it isn't like the whole room was turned around and, uh, and gazing at him. They're watching out of their corner of their eye. They're trying to be cool about it. 
And uh, behold, here's the reason they were watching him. There was a certain man before him, there in the room that he had entered, who had dropsy. And dropsy was a disease in the ancient world that was the retention of fluids. And usually it was a symptom of a deeper uh, medical problem that you would have. Uh, your kidneys not working, uh, your heart not working properly. So the, the ga gaining of, of the fluid. And so uh, this man would have uh, been very, very uncomfortable. This would have been a very painful condition for him uh, to be in. Now they know full well that when Jesus walked into a room, he would always spot the person with the greatest need, and this was the man with the greatest need, and so he spots uh, uh, the man. The, the complication here is found there in verse 1, that all of this, uh, this meal and all of these events are taking place on the Sabbath. And so we're told in verse 3, and Jesus answering, now this is interesting, so he answers them, but they haven't posed a question. He recognizes the question that they are posing. And the question that they are posing, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Now, if you were not as patient as Jesus, at this point in going through the Gospels, you might hit yourself in the forehead and say, Oy vey, this again? Uh, because it seems like he was always needing to, them, to make this point to them. And so Jesus answered the unanswered question, and he spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, Jewish religious leaders, and he said to them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? So he points the question that they're asking right back to him. He tends to deal in the light that way. But they kept silent, so they have no response to his, uh, his question. And so he then took the, the man with the dropsy and he healed him and let him go. You can just imagine here, he takes him, he heals him and says, uh, let's, uh, let's let you return to normal life rather than being a theological discussion for religious leaders who are uh, so heartless as to put you in a place uh, like this and do no good for you. And so he releases him. And then, uh, and then he answered them, continuing to answer their question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? He said to them, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? I, I, just, I would like to have a, just a show of hands if, if for any of you that have had a donkey or an ox to fall in a pit and you had to pull them out. I'll just start over here and uh, see if we get any hands uh, going. Uh, a complete strikeout if for the tape. Uh, we'll show that. Well, no, none of us have, have typically gone through anything like that but it sounds like hard work. <laughs> to pull a donkey out of a pit? To pu pull an ox? Well, the ox hasn't, doesn't have the stubbornness, but the sheer size. It takes a lot of effort to pull a donkey or an ox out of a pit. And yet Jesus confronts them with the fact that they had no problem with interpreting the law of Moses in a way 
that allowed them to pull their animals uh, out of some pit or some other danger to safety. They managed to massage the Old Testament law in order to accommodate that. But they're very strict on human beings. They, they interpreted Moses' law concerning human beings much more strictly than they did uh, the law of Moses concerning animals. And so he said, which one of you wouldn't uh, do that? Pull your animal out on the Sabbath day. And they could not answer him concerning these things. In other words, Jesus gave them, uh, he gave them an opening that you could drive a white freight liner through if they wanted to do it. All anybody had to do was, uh, was just to say to them, chapter and verse, from the Old Testament, why it isn't lawful to take care of the needs of a human being and heal a human being on the Sabbath day when they would do uh, the, the very thing for an animal. And so that ended that particular uh, discussion, and, uh, and uh, probably everyone in the room said, uh, note to self, uh, do not uh, uh, ask Jesus uh, uh, unasked questions because he's going to put you in a, a very difficult uh, light and you'll end up checkmated r- related to how he responds. And so then while he's got them all there, they've kind of uh, done what they wanted to do to him. So he uses the opportunity to now speak to them about uh, how uh, God views things. And he said, when you were invited by anyone to a wedding feast. Now, wedding feasts were really big deals in those days. I mean, it was a week-long celebration, and it was really something, and big. I mean, they really invited uh, a lot of people. And so, when uh, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the best place. Uh, lest one more honorable than you uh, be invited by him, and he who invited you and him then will come up to you and say, would you give up your seat for this man? And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. Now, if you you picture that in your mind, you put yourself in the place that takes the highest seat and exalts himself in that way, and then in a massive crowd of people that you are intimate with in terms of relationship, and, and, and as Jesus puts here, with shame to take the lowest place. That would be, I mean, I can almost feel my cheeks burning here. I mean, I've done things as stupid as this and worse, but this would be a very embarrassing uh, situation. So the highest seats at something like this would be, they'd walk in, there'd be tables everywhere, seats everywhere. And the highest seats were the seats that were closest uh, to uh, the person that was putting on the feast or uh, the bride and the groom and their family. And so he says, when you come in, don't just automatically assume uh, that the the best seat is for you and to take it. And he said, but when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place. Take the, the the table that is the farthest away, I mean the absolute humblest seat in the entire room, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, 
friend, what are you doing here in the, in the cheap seats? What are you doing out in the, in the bleachers here? You go up higher, and then you'll have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. That's one of the things about humility. He's saying, have the humility that when you walk into a room, find the, the, the humblest or the lowest seat and take a seat there because you can only go up from there. There's anything lower in, in the room. And, and even though it's the lowest seat, it isn't the worst seat in the house. No seat in the house. You're still in the wedding feast. You're not excluded. But to take that particular seat means you can enjoy everything in that seat. It is, it, it, the, it, humility is the most peaceful life. Uh, it, it, it is uh, 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 the most uncomplicated life that anyone can have. You can sit down and just enjoy whatever happens. Nobody's going to bump me from this seat. The only thing that can happen is that, that I would move up. And that's, that's the way that it is. Humility is a very, very peaceful way to live and, uh, and, uh, and a blessed way to live. You look at, uh, uh, look at the world that we live in where um, uh, every, our modern world is so intense and so everything and uh, look at the, the competition for a, uh, in normal times, for a parking spot at the mall at Christmas time. I mean, every parking spot becomes like you're a big game hunter. I mean, you're, we're invested. We go to the store and we're checking out all of these aisles and which one's the, the shortest and then Oh, she's still using checks? That takes forever when somebody's still using checks here. And then they got to call the manager and, and, uh, and I got in the wrong line again or you get in the express line and you're counting, okay, the, uh, nine or less. One, two, three, four, five, six. And we get in this frenzy of thing. And it's, it's an awful, this, this sense of privilege within our culture, uh, this, this sense of, of what we're due and what we should expect is it is we pay a very high price uh, for it. So I do all of those things, by the way, but I'm, I'm learning, I'm growing in, in all of this. But I just make the point, it's a very high-maintenance life. And then here's the point, uh, verse 11, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So that's the principle Jesus is laying out with the parable. And it is the truth. Now it may take some time before that happens, but it always happens. The person, especially in the kingdom of God, the person who is selfishly ambition, ambition is okay, selfish ambition is not okay. Selfishly ambitious that is, feels a competition with everyone else, and if I don't get that seat, somebody else will get that seat, and always striving for uh, these kind of positions and this kind of influence and this kind of authority, always there's a great humbling that is coming uh, to such a person's life. They will be humbled, and the person who humbles himself will be exalted. 
Now, sometimes a person can be a little bit concerned that, you know, if I'm always taking the, the lowest seat, then, you know, I think God has given me promises in my life, and I take the lowest seat, I'm never going to uh, achieve those, uh, those promises, that I'll never get noticed. And the Bible says that promotion uh, doesn't come from the north or the south or the east or the west, it comes from the Lord. You and I will never, ever be overlooked by God in terms of His plan for our lives and use of our lives by taking the lowest seat. He knows right where to find us. His kingdom operates completely different than the kingdom uh, of the world. And then he also said, he spoke to those who came uh, to the luncheon that he had been invited to on the Sabbath day, and then he then speaks to uh, the chief Pharisee, uh, ruler of the Pharisee, who had invited him to the supper, and he says, when you give a dinner or a supper, don't ask uh, your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich uh, neighbors, and the room was filled with these people, uh, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. Don't invite people to these meals that can simply repay you by bringing you then to their home and feeding you something even better than you fed them. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, uh, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for uh, you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So you really, you really love to host people, you really love to care people, you really love to bless people, then invite people that never get invited to this kind of thing and could never repay you the meal that you put in front of them. And that's a great test for our motives, and that's the point that he's, he's making uh, through here with them, is, is a test of, of their motives. And he says, uh, they can't repay you, but you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The Lord will repay you one day um, if you spend your life in this, this kind of a way to bless others rather than, uh, that can't bless you back, rather than blessing only who can uh, bless, uh, repay you with blessing. Now, when Jesus talks about being repaid at the resurrection of the just, here is now he's talking about uh, the fact that uh, of one day in heaven, uh, people standing before God and, and Christians standing uh, before God and uh, receiving a reward for how we handle ourselves um, in this life. Not our salvation, but a reward for service. And as he talks about that kind of eternal uh, setting and event that's in the future, uh, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to Jesus, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And this was his way of saying, blessed is he who is one day going to be uh, in heaven and have fellowship uh, with God. Isn't heaven going to be great? Isn't heaven going to be wonderful? Isn't heaven going to exceed everything that we've enjoyed at this feast that this chief uh, uh, ruler of the Pharisees has put before us? And Jesus said to him, so there's certain things people said, and Jesus kind of let it slide. And then there were other things that, that people said, and he was compelled 
by the Spirit to then address them. And this was one of those things. The assumption of everyone in that room, the assumption of every Pharisee, every ruler, every lawyer, a lawyer being an expert in the law of Moses and in a Jewish culture, every one of them had no doubt they were going to one day end up in heaven. If anyone was going to get to heaven, they were going to get to heaven. This was not a matter of if, it was a matter of when. That's how they viewed it. So Jesus uh, said to him, a certain man gave a great supper. And the problem with all of it is they expect to be in heaven. He makes this proclamation, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of heaven, while he in the entire room has rejected Jesus as Messiah and a Savior, and assuming they will be in heaven for all of their works, all of their knowledge, uh, despite having rejected the Son of God for salvation. And so Jesus said to him, a certain man gave a great supper, and he invited many. And, and he sent his servant, well, let me stop at verse 16, how they used to do a, a great supper in, at this particular point in time, is they would tell you, they would, if you were going to be invited over for a great dinner, they would give you the day. That's all. There was no one o'clock or four o'clock or six o'clock. You got the day. And then people would let the, the master of the meal tell them they were going to come, and then he would know how many animals to slaughter, how to, you know, many, much of the meal to prepare, and, and all of this. And then, uh, and then it, when everything was made ready, then he would send his servant, verse 17, the, uh, the man would, uh, at supper time, and say to those who were invited, come, for all things are now ready. The invitation now uh, 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 to, uh, to salvation and the invitation now to one day be in heaven and eat bread in the kingdom of God. Hear this parable of the, the great supper. And so the, the word goes out, the invitation, but then they all with one accord began to make excuses, speaking of the Pharisees and the lawyers and, and so forth. And they began to make excuses for why they couldn't come, why they couldn't be, uh, couldn't be saved, couldn't trust in Christ for salvation. And the first one said, in declining uh, the banquet, said to him, I've bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. We're not talking about Gentiles here, we're talking about Jews. Do you know a single Jew who would buy a piece of land without having seen it? Do you know a single Gentile who would buy a piece of land without having seen it? In other words, it is an absolute lame excuse. And so he says, I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. Okay, do I have to repeat it? <laughs> Who in the world would buy five yoke of oxen and then say, uh, the, the cash is already past hands, now I need to go see uh, the condition of these oxen. Again, it's a lame excuse. Nobody would, would do that. And so I ask you to have me excused. 
And then this guy, he's not going to blame land or blame oxen. He's going to blame his wife. And so he said, I have married a wife. And you know how complicated that gets. That's not, that's not really in there. But he said, I have married a wife, so I'm a newlywed, and therefore I cannot come. Bring your wife. Bring your wife. So again, lame excuse, lame excuse, lame excuse. I mean pathetically, pathetically lame excuses. If you've raised children, you know you, that age eight they can come up with better stuff than this, than, than what they came up with. So what's the point? The point is there is no good excuse that exists for rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior and rejecting the invitation to one day share heaven with Him. And one day when people stand before Jesus and give all of the excuses that they think are legitimate excuses for doing so, they will appear as lame as any of these excuses uh, appear before us. Now, I think that all three of these, the, the, to the first one and then another, and then still another, with, with the excuses being made, I, it, it is interesting that they make excuses based upon three different things. The first, on the basis of possession, the land. And the second, on the basis of commerce, or on the basis of career, making money off of these oxen. The third, on the basis of relationships. And these are the things so often that people reject Christ and salvation for and use as an excuse uh, for not coming uh, to Him. But none of them are uh, a legitimate excuse. And so the servant came, and he reported these excuses to his master, and then the master of the house said, well... Easy come, easy go. Now the master of the house, which represents God the Father, being angry, being angry, a righteous anger associated with the rejection of his invitation. So he has said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets, into the lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Bring in the Jewish people that are in this condition that, uh, that, were, uh, uh, that uh, loved and followed Jesus in such great numbers. And so the servant said, Master, it's done as you commanded. They've come and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out in the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be full, talking about the Gentile world who were even further out on, on things. For I say uh, to you that none of these men who were invited shall taste my uh, supper. And so uh, this, uh, this incredible parable, very, very strong parable that Jesus uh, gives here and, and, and the realization that to reject God's offer of salvation is to miss heaven. doesn't matter what, what the excuse is. And uh, teaching us also uh, the danger of assuming that I'm going to heaven as these religious leaders were doing on the basis of good works, on the basis of religious activity, or attending a church, and all of these other kind of things as opposed to trusting in uh, 
uh, Christ. And, and then the third thing that it r reminds us of is the danger of such excuses. Because these kind of excuses in anybody's life, and, so, and, and here I speak to those that, that aren't saved, but for all of our understanding, always when there is an excuse that is used to delay or reject, reject, uh, rejecting putting my faith in Christ, it leaves me in an unsaved state. And the opportunity to be saved is a finite opportunity. It ends with uh, death. And so the parable is needed ju uh, today just as much as uh, 2,000 years ago. I'm going to stop there uh, tonight, and we'll pick things up in verse 25 because it all flows together to um, the... Uh, all the way to the end of the chapter. So if we jump into verse 25, we've got to go all the way through, and I don't want to rush that. I'm always so rushed, and uh, it just makes a nervous wreck out of me. I'm just kidding. But, um, but we'll wait, and we'll pick that up and give it its due time. So if the worship team would come out and uh, uh, close with a couple of uh, worship songs and then come up and lead us in worship a little bit as we meditate what we've looked at here tonight, and then, um, uh, and then I'll close us out in prayer, and I'll close us in another song. If you are here tonight and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then tonight is the night uh, to do that.